Good morning. It's good to see you guys. So as you know, my name is Jason, and as you know, we started a series last week, and I'm calling it Principles of Community, and I'm hoping that the slide that you're seeing on social media, as well as on the screen, that we're using as the backdrop, the slide of tree rings, I'm hoping it all connects. You guys know that generally a thing is most, most perfectly defined in its title. If the title is good, then you get the picture of the whole thing. I'll give you an example. There's a great book that I don't recommend you read by Dan Ellender, an amazing writer, but skip the book. It's all in the title. The title of the book is Leading with a Limp. There it is. You got it. You don't need, you don't need any more of the book than that. It's actually a tedious, really hard to read book that I read in grad school. It's written for seminarians, but the whole thing is in the title. And so what I'm hoping that, why am I saying that? I'm hoping that you gather as we work our way through the book of Acts, that most of what we're going to talk about is really uh, plugged into the title. Always pay close attention to title. And what I want you to notice this morning is that we're not calling it principles of Christian community. We're just calling it principles of community. And that, that's because there's no qualifier needed. Let me see if we can do a little practical theology on the fly here. Why does that matter? Well, if I could be so bold, let me just say it this way. Spiritual journeys are not just about becoming better Christians. That's actually not a thing. You're either a good human or you're not. No category other than that is needed. True spirituality is about becoming better people. True spiritual work goes way beyond the furthest boundary of Christianity or of any particular faith for that matter, if you must know. It goes beyond those things until it starts to address how we are as human beings in community who live in community. Spiritual work will change the way we actually live or it isn't spiritual. We ought to insist on nothing less than that. Okay, so there's a half, there's a half an amen in the room. All right. <laughs> I think if we served everybody iced coffee coming in, we'd be like, we'd be here till like four. So maybe we shouldn't do that. But I mean this, I trust some of you that are new around here, you're, you pick up, we do theology as we go. And I'm hoping that you're, 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 this is beginning to make sense with you. You see, there is no secular spiritual divide in your life. There just isn't a way to make sense of it. It didn't make sense to me when I was a kid when I was told this is Christian music and this is secular music. We should have known from the very beginning. Listen, any good interpretation of how it was that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ ought to have taught us that there's no way to divide between things that are spiritual and things that are secular. In fact, any good way, any good understanding of how it is that God takes on flesh in your life and in your body should have encouraged us to understand that there's no division, there's no way to separate the things in our life. Even if we tried for 20 centuries and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of theology, even if we did our best to dissect between the divinity and the humanity of Jesus and were, and were unable to do it, it, no matter how hard we tried, we should have known there that there, is no, there are no two worlds. So there's only one community. There isn't Christian community and the rest of your life. It's just all the same thing. Simply put, I would say it this way in one formula. What works, works everywhere in all domains, or it just doesn't work. So if we're not becoming better people, don't tell me how good your thinking is. It doesn't matter. If you're a rotten neighbor, I don't care how long you've been an elder at your church or a whatever, a trustee of the whatever. Okay. Therefore, I, I know, I, I know it's good. I know, I, know, I know it's good. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> to become a good and decent human being, this, these are the goals of, of spirituality. A present and available neighbor, a wholehearted and epically kind parent or child or uncle or aunt, this is the great spiritual work, journey of, journey of our lives. Eventually, all points will converge on this one thing, and you can call it mission if you want. I would just simply say it's people that are transformed by love. That's the goal. So I heard from some of you after last week's sermon where I tried my best to name for 
for us what it, how I think of the, uh, the most important foundation of community. And the idea really was, and if you didn't catch it, you can go back and catch it. Rejecting this idea of an angry God, this monstrous God who somehow had to or was obligated to murder his son in order to love us again. I think that's the worst way to begin thinking, and that's the worst way to begin community. And apparently that hit a nerve. Even the bit about Jonathan Edwards and that sermon that sadly after 300 years still has legs. Here's the funny thing about that. I nearly scrapped that whole bit. I worried that it might sound jagged. See, I don't know if the voices in your head come to you the way they come to, my, come to me, right? So I, 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 I never really quite know what's going to sound too deconstructive or too angry. And let's just be honest. It's not always attractive or compelling to stand in front of you and grind old axes or try to deal with old narratives that still live on as vestiges in my mind. And I'm never quite sure if that's going to relate. That can be a disorienting thing, and one as a leader ought to be careful with that. Not everything is for public consumption, and I don't always know the difference, and I confess, and we have this conversation all the time as a board and as a staff. I just kind of plop it out there. Anyway, after last week, one of you mentioned to me how you'd always struggle to explain to your young children this gore of the cross, the centrality of the crucifixion of God, because it made God seem so awful, so angry, so punitive. And our Christian tradition seems to not help us very much with this, but it's long on, gives us huge doses of hell and heaven and guilt and shame and anger and violence and various theories of atonement that to me seem, after all these years, to be totally missing the point altogether. Well, here's what I want to tell you this morning. If you want to say something powerful to your children about the gospel, try this. Tell them that the cross shows just how far love was always going to go to demonstrate how much all of us, no exceptions, are, are, we're, we're always in the vision of God to have them back. Not just good people or kind people or boy people or white people or straight people or Christian people or American people. No, no. The cross has always shown us how far love was always going to go to have all people back into the bosom of God's love. And while you're at it, if you're speaking of practical things to your children. Tell them that power or empire or whatever word makes sense to them, maybe bullies or whatever, whatever word makes sense to their tender and wise hearts, tell them that brute force will always attempt to eliminate the subversive influence of love and then remind them as Jesus reminds all of us that power will never succeed in containing love because love will always win. It always wins in the end. You want to tell your kids something? Tell them that. And hear me, they'll understand. Trust me. They were built to understand such things. Our primary work as parents, if we must reduce it to one single thought, is to never tire of reminding our little ones what they knew when they arrived, and that is simply this, that love holds it all together. Good grief. Half of a, half of a, mm-hmm, little something in here today. Ah, so today we turn our hearts to the conversion of Saul, which is one of these impressive stories that Luke thought that Theophilus ought to know about. And so let's look at that now comes to us uh, from the chapter 9 of the book of Acts. In your Bible, it would be titled, The Conversion of Saul. Let me just read it. You can follow along. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, capital W there, that's what they called people that followed the teachings of Jesus at the time. If he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? They repl the reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. 
And Saul got up from the ground, and through his eye, though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So he led him by the hand, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now the rest of the story follows in the next few verses, and I'll paraphrase for the sake of time. Ananias, a follower of Jesus, receives a vision. He's the hero in the story to me, in which he is given instructions where to find a man named Saul, still blinded by the light that he had seen on the way. And Ananias, of course, questions God, naturally knowing Saul's reputation. He goes, despite his reservation, and he lays hands on Saul, and immediately scales fell from his eyes. And we have no idea what Luke means by that. But immediately scales fell from his eyes, and immediately Saul begins to preach the gospel according to Luke. Now this, friends, is a dramatic story. And it's a story that I think Luke is using to set up what is the bulk of the book of Acts to follow. Remember, Luke writes these accounts down because it seemed important to preserve them while the eyewitnesses like himself could still vouch for their details. And you know how stories change and morph and drift over time. I'll offer you this small example. If you were to ask anyone in my immediate family how many years we actually lived in Mexico, I would give you one answer. My dear sweet sister would give you an entirely different answer. My parents would give you both different answers. Now, we were all there, presumably for an objective amount of time, but we all have a different telling of that same story. Maybe we should have written some things down years ago. <laughs> well, Luke, Luke wrote this stuff down, especially the more dramatic stories like the one we have today, to establish the facts of what happened. Because this is a tricky story. I want us to think about this story of Saul. And it's not because of the lightning bolt or the booming voice heard by all that no one could see the person. There would have been a ton of interest around the specifics of this, of this because of who was being addressed by Jesus. In this case, Saul, the monster of Tarsus. It's actually hard to describe how, how Saul was represented, uh, what he meant to the friends of Jesus at the time. He was a learned rabbi, as you know, of the theological school of Gamaliel, which is sort of like saying he had his music degree from Berkeley, right? It's a branding thing. It was a high-level thing. And so he was respected. But his brand of Judaism was also ferociously aggressive. He was a zealot for theological purity and social austerity. He was respected and he was feared. And I tried all week, but I couldn't think of anyone in our world who actually compares. You'd have to stretch it and it would cease to be true. You see, we know very little about actual persecution. In America, where even our presidents have to at least feign faith to be elected, persecution isn't much of a thing for us. Christians are empowered in the world that we live in. And of course, we persecute to be sure, but we, we are rarely the recipients of such persecution. But this wasn't the case for the friends of Jesus they had a real threat on their hands. No imagination was needed to paint the picture of who Saul was. And of course, we know that Saul, who changes his name after this encounter with Jesus to Paul, will go on to become a titan of the early church. But you see, they didn't at the time. And so Luke is writing the story of how these things transpired. Paul's conversion occupies major real estate in the New Testament, is the way I would like to say it. We have this initial story in Acts 9, and then in Acts 21, Paul will go on when he's now the narrator. He'll go on to tell part of the story, then he'll go on and add more detail in Acts 26. And if, if that wasn't enough, then he'll go on and talk about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and eventually in, in the book of Galatians. You see, there was genuine curiosity around the story of how Paul could have possibly found faith in Jesus. It would prove to be a very difficult story for the early church uh, to get their heads around, because many of them, according to Luke, never actually learned to trust this man who had persecuted the ones they loved. But what's interesting to me is it wasn't just the community that was anxious about this story. Paul was as well. You see, till, till he came along, no one could actually have been considered safe or apostolic 
had they not been there with Jesus from the very beginning. And Paul was not. If you listen closely enough to the voice of Paul, and I always try to, you can almost hear Paul fluffing his feathers, preening constantly, as if somehow trying to argue for the legitimacy of the message that he brought. You see, history would give him his due, and from where we sit, we understand his contribution, but his contemporaries, well, they had their doubts. Paul would write most of the New Testament, and his epic missionary journeys take up the majority of the book of Acts, but this was his, just his introduction, the, the, the story that we're looking at today. His story of origin, if you will. Luke introducing Paul's story to Theophilus. And all heroes, as you know from the ancient world, had to have dramatic details associated with their beginnings. And Saul was complicated because Saul was a murderer. By his own admission, he had stood by as those who murdered Stephen before the council threw stones to crush the life out of the man who was probably the best preacher and certainly the first martyr of the early church. And Paul wanted to franchise this violence that he developed in Jerusalem. He wanted to take it as far as the influence of Jesus had gone. So he secures permission to follow the trail all the way to Damascus, which would have been a long way at the time, to emancipate Judaism from the cancer that he called the way. So with a license to capture and kill Jesus' followers wherever he could find them, and Luke points out both male and female, I don't know why he adds that detail, with this license to kill, he moves north out of the city of David. And obviously the good news was spreading quickly, and Saul wanted to snuff it out before it took root. And it's on this journey north, out of Jerusalem, that Saul is confronted by a blinding light. He was traveling with others, presumably armed men who were willing to arrest anyone, certainly to protect Paul, but also to arrest anyone who was unwilling to publicly disavow this loyalty to the teachings of Jesus. And the stakes were high for the friends of Jesus. We're well past sheep and children and fig trees and parables of pearls at this point. Now to be affiliated with Jesus of Nazareth and his, his bold and provocative teachings about liberation and freedom for the oppressed could cost you your very life. No one is messing around at this point. You see, empire with the religious institutions that offered it some version of legitimacy had figured out, and they were right, that these teachings were a threat to their very existence. The body that they had killed, well, it wouldn't stay buried, and these simpletons wouldn't stop talking to everyone about it. And this could change the world, they correctly determined, which somehow made murder justifiable. You see, religious piety was thought to be more important than love and freedom, which feels ironic since murder was as much against their faith system as it is against ours. But they were desperate, you see, and they tried to avoid a bigger mess by murdering the leader, but the body, oh, that pesky body, it wouldn't stay underground. We're in Eastertide now, and that's the theme that runs throughout. So without a better plan, a young firebrand named Saul of Tarsus talked them into an escalation of tactics, as it were, no doubt considering the murder and the incarceration of a few in order to protect the purity of the masses. Well, that would be the lesser of two evils and so this was the plan. And even without Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, word still got around. Even Ananias, the true hero of the story, in my opinion, questions God when he receives these instructions, essentially saying, what, who, where? You have to be joking. This guy is literally carrying letters that authorize our extermination. Now remember, setting it back into the context of the series, we're looking for principles of community in these stories, specifically things that might remind us what's worth fighting for as we build our community around the good news. And I don't know if you're the sort of person who needs proof to believe a thing or to accept a thing. I don't tend to be super like that in my own way, but if I were that sort of person, and if I were looking for reasons to believe that the teachings of Jesus really were as remarkable as all these stories seem to suggest, here it is, friends. 
In my view, there is no stronger proof, no better evidence whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned, that love wins, that the gospel is real, than watching these fledgling communities called the way love its worst enemy back to health. Think of that ask. What an extraordinary piece of character that they were able to demonstrate. The amazing thing is it didn't take forever. Luke writes that Paul immediately started preaching the gospel of Jesus. Now, Paul would go on in Galatians to say that he was stowed away in Arabia for three years, after which he came to Jerusalem and stayed at the house of Peter, which is important because, you see, Peter was trusted, but Paul was not yet. Peter was there from the beginning. Paul was not. He was an unknown entity. What interests me most, it's not all the flashy details of the story, but what interests me more than the blinding light and the booming voice is this little bit of timeline that we see evolving here. You see, we know Paul will go on to become the most prolific missionary and writer of the early church, but how, how did he cut to the front of the line so quickly? Even though his beliefs wouldn't have had time to sufficiently congeal around the teachings of the apostles and he wasn't there with Jesus from the very beginning, and we know how much that mattered to the early church, how does he without putting in the hours, get to cut right to the front of the line. Thinking about this this week emboldens me to say something that I don't very often hear said, but I'm going to say it. The real horsepower behind the call to preach the gospel of Jesus to all people is the courage to include. Not refined belief or precise doctrines or perfect theology. Luke says Paul preached immediately because Paul understood immediately that no one should be excluded. And people who had already spent a bunch of time sorting out their beliefs were left scratching their heads. How could this happen? They were focused, you see, on behavior and on belief while Paul understood belonging. How could he possibly know this much so quick? Oh, but you see, friends, even, even if the others had sufficient history in the entourage of Jesus and time with the Twelve, even if they had spent all their time getting their heads around it, if they failed to see how every person was included in the redemptive arc of God's story, then they had missed the most important point completely. Paul had every reason to be excluded, being a murderer, of course, from this elite group of church leaders. Just look at his life for the evidence. But I believe that because of his story, Paul would go on to endlessly tirelessly include the excluded. He would fight for this principle courageously, which has me thinking about our philosophy of inclusion as a community, which should drive our philosophy of mission, which has everything to do with how we build community and what we gather around. You see, I grew up as a missionary in Latin America, as many of you know. Any MKs in the room? I was reminded this morning that that's an acronym that only we understand. I love, you know, the little code switching, the little dog whistle there. I grew up as a missionary in the overlap of multiple cultures trying to figure out how the world worked. You see, as missionaries, we carried certainties and well-formed conclusions and airtight systematic theologies around the world with us as we traveled. We trafficked in ideas almost entirely cooked up by white men who thought for a living in the dark wood paneled hallways of the academies of Europe. We employed the natives to knock down the old growth trees to build new schools of Western theology. This, of course, we taught them was something about saving their souls. And we lined up well-dressed folks in straight-backed pews and taught them to sing translated worship songs from English in 4-4 time as if we were sitting in Colorado Springs in the late 1980s. Then we preached down to them for several hours at a time, multiple times a week, about ideas that their forefathers and foremothers would have had no context for. You see, we weren't great social scientists. We weren't concerned with local anthropology or pre-Columbian archaeology or even organic sociology. That was all demonic, you understand, according to the way we saw the world. We brought God with us. We were sure of it. Help had arrived. And we made a colossal mess of it. 
There's never, there's never much left over when you show up thinking that nothing of spiritual value or of transcendent value arrived before you did. That's when you burn it all down and you call that good. And that's not missionary work, my friends. We have a word for that in social science that's called conquest. And they are not the same thing. And I think it's time that we get honest about our footprints as Americans, friends. It's time that we tell our children they deserve to know the truth about what we did in the 19th and 20th centuries, even under the guise of world missions. And we need to be courageous enough to tell them ourselves. Did we learn foreign languages to tell people about a God they'd never heard of? Or did we learn foreign languages to open our hearts and minds to discover a totally new world in which God had always already been active in pursuing people in their own native tongue? Oh, friend, <laughs> I think you know the answer that I'm implying. You see, community must be built on a common understanding that all people bear within them the hallmarks of God. Can we, by sharing the good news, summon new depths in the hearts of our hearers by graciously weaving our stories with their own? Of course we can. But does one cosmovision have to completely vanquish the other? Or does this stuff not layer and build and accumulate and harmonize like tree rings over time, always moving forward in the strength of what came before it? I think you already know the answer to this question. So this final thought, and you get to guess how many final thoughts we're going to have today. <laughs> we psyched the band out, and they came up after the first final thought, and then I told them to chill out. There's, there's multiple final thoughts here. Hear me clearly. We're now looking down the history barrel at the life of Paul, and I want us to get this straight. You see, people really make a mess out of Paul. If you go in too deep at one thing and you pull it out and you say, this is forever, listen, we got to keep this in mind. Here's what I think it amounts to. It was the courage to include. That's what the ministry of Paul was built on. And let me be clear. It's not just important to the gospel. that The courage to include is the gospel itself. This thing they call the way is not a sect of Jewish thought. It's not just a nationalist revival. It's not even a rediscovery of the roots of good Hebrew ideology. This is a human message of liberation for all humans in all places. However much or little Paul knew about the teachings of Jesus, he knew this much for all people in all places. That was the target, nothing less. You see, liberation has no limits. It knows no bounds. Correct belief pales by comparison to the courage to include all. Friends, if it isn't flamboyantly inclusive, it isn't the gospel. It's no more complicated than that. One of my favorite stories from the New World involves a prince of the Inca people named Atahualpa. I wonder if you've ever heard this story. I love it so much. You see, Atahualpa inherits half of the largest of the ancient South American kingdoms from his father right about the same time that the Spanish lust for gold brings the Pizarro brothers to our shores. And there were about 175, some guess, people with Pizarro, but they had gunpowder and germs and steel, not to mention horses. And as was their custom, they invite Prince Atahualpa to a banquet to honor his recent victory over a rival. You see, the Spanish needed gold, and they needed a way to rationalize or theologically baptize, if you will, the great theft that they were planning. Anyway, after a brief and very crooked reading of the history of the world, and we call this in the New World requerimientos, and literally it's a document of theology that was written in the school of Salamanca, the theological school in Old Spain, and it was a way to read in Spanish, ironically, to the natives how the world worked, and if they didn't, dis if they didn't agree with that, then you could be justified scripturally in the taking of all that you had in front of you. After a brief and crooked reading of the history of the world, the Incan priest is expected to just unlock the storehouses of gold and become a believer. And he was listening, but he wasn't converted, and he wasn't yet fighting back, which presented the Pizarro brothers with a unique challenge. 
They needed a reason to initiate this massacre. By the way, this is a true story, and that picture you see on the wall just about says it all. They needed a reason to initiate the taking of this gold. So a priest named Felipillo, and I wish I was making that up, that was actually his name. He breaks out a Bible and he has a go at converting Atahualpa, but the prince of the Incas is not seeing the logic of the story. He says, and I paraphrase, I don't accept the story of a God, of the God that you speak of, because if this were true, my people would have been depicted in the telling of your history of God in the world, but we're not included. You see, he takes the Bible from Felipillo and he begins to leaf through it. And he finds no artistic depiction of the people that he would recognize as his own. He says, I reject your story of God. If it were a true story, my people would have been written into the same story. I see no pictures of my people, so I don't accept your story of God. In a tussle, the end of this discussion, the Bible falls to the ground. And believing that to be some disrespect to the word of God, that was all the justification needed to fire and open a massacre of several thousands of Incas on the spot, and so fell the empire. You see, what Atahualpa knew intuitively the refined minds of the old world could not see. And here's what it is. Inclusion is the gospel. Inclusion is the foundation of community. So this is my last final thought. It wasn't the what. It was never the what of the gospel. It was always the who of the good news of Jesus that drove Paul. The who drove him to extreme lengths, risking life and death year after year to take this message of inclusion to as many people in the known world in the ancient times as he was physically able to go. Oh, friend, if we build anything that's going to last, we're going to have to build it on this conclusion. It's for all. It's for all. I pray our community will be known for nothing less than this. Let it be. Spirit of God, let it be.